I want to talk this morning about uh, God's power to change for good. At the beginning of this year, in uh, the 20th of March, the unthinkable happened in our family. A phone call came through from my sister to say her husband had just dropped dead. Uh, he's 48 years old, <clears throat> and they'd just gone out to Africa to live, South Africa to live, and uh, the family, the three children, had to come back home and live with us for a season. What was amazing about this was it was just not, the family's still reeling in a sense, but the funeral was a funeral like I, I didn't expect. I knew it was in the military, but the funeral, when you came to the uh, town, you couldn't get near the town, such was police roadblocks, and uh, you had to be screened to go in. And uh, I was <coughs> actually speaking at the funeral, but so was the leader of the SAS speaking. And he shared about Richard, as my brother-in-law, how he was the man who first went into Afghanistan, into Iran, Iraq, I mean, and how he led the special forces. And he talked about how a hundred of Richard's special forces soldiers withstood over a couple of days in Afghanistan, 10,000 Taliban as they attacked. And he said, the most amazing thing about this man is that he, he went into situation after situation and he didn't get injured. He, he was all, almost like Teflon. And then he was struck down in this most unseen way with a brain tumor. And there was articles in the Times that have been written about my brother-in-law and the stories are starting to come out. And it's like, good grief, this man was a real soldier. This man was brave. This man would go and, and do some incredible things. This was a real-life James Bond in every sense of the word. And as I have reflected over the months since, obviously seeing quite a bit of my sister, I'm aware that Paul uses military language when he talks about Christians. Metaphors describe the Christian life. Guard, wrestle, fight the good fight, endure hardship like a good soldier. Terry Virgo is fond of saying the Christian life is not like a battle, it is a battle. And yet, in truth, I have this doubt. It seems sometimes like a phony war that the church is involved with. Oh, I know I, I can see the enemy advancing in this country every year. Laws that are being passed and opposition to the gospel. But the church, in all truth and honesty, seems to be, well, weak. John used the word superficial last night. Something doesn't feel right in my spirit that God has given this incredible, beautiful, almost like a Porsche 911 Carrera car called the church, and it seems to be to me in first gear. It seems to me that we're not cutting it. We're not being this light set on a hill, this, this, this pervading influence of salt. If I look at the church, in all honesty, I see fun church. I see joke church. I see I church, frivolous church, rule church, denominational church. And all of these churches are irrelevant to a world that is perishing. No one seems to be listening to the church. 
And I believe with all my heart, and I know I'm going to offend people through the course of this weekend, I believe with all my heart things need to change. Our churches need to change. We need to change. We need to stop seeing ourselves as pampered little children in need of spoon feeding. We need to see ourselves in a robust way that we are called to change this nation. We are called to speak with one voice to governments and to local authorities and to parliaments and to say, no, this far, no further. Because there is a king on Zion's hill, a king that is in charge, and we're to bring his rule and reign wherever we are in whatever we do. And so I say, I get this feeling the church is just taking it easy. Someone wrote this poem, how do you take it easy when... His fire burns within. How do you take it easy in a world that's crushed by sin? How do you take it easy with a thousand tribes to tell? How do you take it easy when this world speeds to hell? How do you take it easy while the church sleeps in its lees? How do you take it easy? Will someone tell me, please? There was a man in the Bible that we're going to look at in the two talks I'm going to do who had a vision. A vision that things were going to change. And his life was captivated with this vision. His life is one which went from uh, good to bad to worse. And yet he held on to this vision. This man had incredible character. Worked out by God in in the heat of battle. And this man came to a position of authority and power to speak to a nation and to feed the world. I believe that's what God would speak to every one of us today. We're here to speak to this nation and to feed the lost, feed the world. His name, of course, is Joseph. And I'm going to look today at the three major battlegrounds that we find in Joseph's life, I want to suggest to you there are three major battlegrounds in our nation that we must win as churches. It is the battleground, firstly, for the Word of God. You never hear someone today saying quite unequivocally, this is what the Bible says. There is a battle for the family. I want to talk about the battle that's on for the family. And I want to talk about the battle that is on for sexual purity in our nation. And I'm aware as I'm saying there, the battle's out there that we've got to get out there and win. I'm very aware that actually first and foremost they're the battles that actually we've got to win within. When I was over in Portugal recently, we went to uh, a city, Guimarães, and in there was a castle. Castles, as always, on a hill. Hard work to get to. You work your way up to this castle, this great big thick door. You let in. And then you see all this stone, stonework and lattice work and these great big parapets that you have to climb. I'm, I'm always thinking, what was it like for someone attacking this? You must have been exhausted just getting there, let alone then fighting a battle. But what I saw when I was on top of the ramparts was right in the middle of this castle, with no way of getting in, was what they call the stronghold. And the only way into the stronghold is when someone within put the bridge so you could cross over. It was the last place of refuge, of safety. 
And I'm aware with Christians that there is a stronghold, and that's what I'm going to be speaking of this morning, strongholds of enemy-like power in a believer's life that doesn't matter how many sermons you hear, doesn't matter how fiery the preacher gets, that stronghold remains untouched. You retreat into a spiritual place where even the word of God doesn't seem to penetrate. And now I know I'm preaching a challenging message today. And I just want to pray for the power of the Holy Spirit. Because unless there is a willingness and openness to let down the drawbridge, this message will have no lasting influence and will soon be forgotten. But I believe we're here to be changed. I'm here to be changed. I want to stand for Jesus in my day. I want Jesus at the end of my day to say, well done. Everything I put within you, you did. And those strongholds within my life, I want to encourage you, as I've had to deal with these, that you too must deal with them to be the soldier of Jesus Christ in your day, in your generation. Lord Jesus, we're so mindful we need your Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, that the power of God would be released through the Word, that hearts would be broken, and that strongholds would come tumbling down, and the grace of God would pour in, that you change lives here this morning. I pray particularly for the men. I pray, God, for grace on them to respond to you, Lord Jesus, and to be changed, and to be men of God in our generation. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, first battle. And this is the battle for the supremacy for the Word of God. Let's just get caught up in the story before we read a passage. Someone said to me, did you go out last night? Anybody go out last night and see the stars? Yeah, apparently it was that. I was in bed, I was asleep. Yeah, someone's got to do that. The rest of you... All freezing cold, I was lovely and warm. Anyway, you were out there looking at the stars. Anyone count them? Anyone get a rough number count? I mean, Abraham, an old guy, called in the purpose of God, was asked to do that. Abraham, great-great-granddad of Joseph, lived for the promises of God. That will be our inheritance, the nations of the world, so shall your offspring be, as numerous as that. It's a big vision. And you can trace through as the patriarchs, as Isaac is born, and then uh, Esau and Jacob are born, and God's sovereign will being outworked, even with the twins, the older will serve the younger. Not the ones that have got most merit, not the ones that are cleverest, even the schemer Jacob, the twister. Him, God choosing God wrestling with to get him to a place. Him having uh, 12 sons. One of those sons, the youngest son, as it turns out, before Benjamin is born. He, on a morning like this morning, comes to breakfast. As all the family, and I, I think, you know, I don't know what sort of breakfast you have. My experience is breakfast tend to be grumpy affairs. And I can just see Joseph skipping in. (laughs) I've had a dream. I've had this dream. I just want to share it with you grumpies and see how you like it. I'd like you to turn to Genesis chapter 37. 
It says in Genesis 37 verse 2, Joseph, a young man of 17, really going to call 17-year-olds this weekend to great purposes in God, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah, the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons and because he had been born to him in his old age, he'd made him a richly ornamented robe. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheep rose and stood upright. Your sheaves gathered round mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he said. And then he had another dream. Oh no, Joseph, just keep it yourself. And he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. This time the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. And when he told it to his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mum and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now please turn over to Genesis chapter 45. Genesis 45, verse 3. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. And then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now... Do not be distressed. Don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there's been famine in the land and for the next five years there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. The life of Joseph is a life of pain and sorrow, expectations and disappointments, hope and bereavement, all woven wonderfully together in the tapestry of the purposes of God. And what Joseph had to deal with throughout his life was to hold on to those promises despite the circumstances and what was going on around them. You see... Joseph had a dream. I have a dream. Do you know it was uh, 46 years ago yesterday that a man stood on the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. and said those famous words, I have a dream. 
And Dr. Martin Luther King said he had a dream that all men were created equal. New Frontiers, when it began, it wasn't called New Frontiers, but Terry Virgo had a dream, a vision, that God would come and restore his church in this nation. That what had become denominational and fragmented, what had become bastions of, of groupings together without any presence of the Holy Spirit, he had a vision that God would restore his church. That people would be baptized in the Holy Spirit, the spiritual gifts would be commonplace. And that this, these churches, these new communities would be birthed with fire and would grow through preaching of the gospel, through making disciples and would go to the very ends of the earth. We're following something of that dream. And when we were preparing for this, uh, this Accelerate, some, one of the leaders in the, in the region said to me, I believe God would say to you, Guy, make the vision plain. Make sure no one leaves Accelerate without understanding clearly what our vision, our purpose together is in terms of what we're called together to do. And so I wanted to share this so everybody is on the same page. I have a dream that small thinking and small churches would become a thing of the past. That we would be known as a faith movement in every sense of that word correctly. I have a dream that every town, every village, in the south, in the southwest, in Wales, in our what we call apostolic sphere, we'll have a church, a New Testament church living. Led not just by full-timers, I believe there's a place for tent makers in how we do this, but I can see hundreds of churches running across Hampshire and Dorset and Cornwall and Devon and right along the M4 corridor. We're called to a huge mission. You know when the Methodists did it? How many Methodist chapels do you see all over the nation? We're called to do, to plant more and more and more churches. I have a dream that the Bible is going to be lifted from obscurity and preached in a new dimension of fire and the fear of God. That pastors will no longer recycle messages they've heard from other people, from other movements, from other conferences. That pastors would give themselves to the preaching of the word. They'd be spending hours and days before the word of God to come to the church with food, as Matt described, laid out beautifully on God's table. I have a dream that the Holy Spirit baptizes every single child from the youngest of age, every member with power from on high. And that gifts of the Holy Spirit are avalanching every time we gather and that there's fire on our meetings that fall. That no unbeliever can be there without saying, God is truly here. God is amongst you. I have a dream that the gospel will be preached with signs and wonders following. That deliverances and healings will silence critics and doubters. That cancers will be healed in Jesus' name. That deaf ears will be opened and the dead will be raised. I have a dream that stadiums up and down our nation, where they are filled at the moment with stupid worship to man, will be filled with worship to our Lord Jesus Christ. Where people will gather in their tens of thousands to hear the gospel, to hear worship and to be tra transformed in the power of the Holy Spirit. I have a dream that together these events like this are going to grow and grow. I'm sorry, I know you hate camping, many of you. I have a dream 
These will grow from their 1,000, whatever it is, 400 this year, to the 2,000, to the 3,000, to the 5,000. Right across the nation, these events will become something your children say, when is that going to happen? We must be there. We can't. We'll forsake everything else, our holidays, everything, because we've got to be there. That is the place lives are transformed. I have a dream that God will come again in our nation in revival. I have a dream that this nation will be turned back to God. I have this dream. And how is this going to become about? Because please hear me, if you're a visitor, I'm not naive. I know there are huge battle lines for this church, for the church in this nation. And I want to suggest to you that first and the most primary battle line of all is over this. This is the word of God. This isn't a few abstract lines penned by distant people with no cohesiveness. This, my friends, is the very word of God. Which is to have full and final authority and say over everything we do. Do you know there are a hundred million Bibles sold every year in the world? They say it's the most bought book and the least read book. Martyrs wrote it. Others have suffered to preserve it. Patiently, painstakingly, making sure the exact words are written down. And it is from this book we learn about God. We find out from God. We hear God speak. God has condescended to teach the way through a book. And so as John Wesley says, he has written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book at any price. Give me the book of God. So my question is, on this stronghold, why is it? Why is it with so many Bibles, and I bet most people in this room has got at least one, if not five, why is it so little read? What is the challenge for us in terms of the Bible? Let me suggest some of the reasons why this stronghold and Christians are fighting today, they're almost fighting with knuckles, bare-faced knuckles, because they're not fighting with the very tools of God, the weapons of God. The weapon of God is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, the Bible. Why is it so many Christians are fighting like that? Let me suggest to you a number of reasons, things that you may indeed have imbibed yourself. Firstly, we have believed the oldest lie that Satan ever spoke. Did God Say. Joseph's brothers, even his dad, hang on Joseph, did God really say that? Are you sure? Some of it can't be right, can it? Richard Dawkins, the Humanist Society, attacked the very foundation, the foundation book of the Bible, Genesis, it's been under attack. Again, recently, it's been under great fire recently. I don't know if you've read the Times last week. In the Times last week, Dawkins is being interviewed and he says, I cannot believe, having written the God delusion, that Christians aren't converting to humanism in huge numbers. How can you read the God delusion and not be convinced, he said. He was incredulous. He is in clear rejection that God created everything in the beginning. He says in his book, the universe, as we observe it, has no design or purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. 
DNA, he says, neither knows nor cares. DNA just is. And we dance to its music. Let me ask this question. Where are the Christian thinkers? Where are the clear Christian thinkers? Where are those that are humble with the text? Where are the scientists that are saying this is the word of God and making it understood? Where are the pastors who are sitting under the word of God and seeing the word of God without trying to tidy up the difficult bits like hell, like creation, where the dinosaurs come from? Did they go in the ark? Like wrath? Even the cross of Christ, as you will well know, justification, propitiation, these wonderful, wonderful doctrines that explain the wrath of God as well as the grace of God and how they need to be understood together to be truly the word of God, how these great doctrines are under attack. Where are the people who are going to stand up? Where are the young people, I can remember as a young person in my A-level biologies, kept interrupting every time there was a supposition of, 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 of a lie or a suggestion, I would put my hand up and say, excuse me, that's not true. So annoying was the lecture. He said, look, if you will shut up, Miller, I'll give you the whole double lecture at the end of term where you can teach on creation as long as you shut up in my class. I really want to encourage you young people, just don't sit and listen to the junk that's being put forward. Think about it. Go back to the Word of God. Think clearly. Think biblically. Secondly, we're put off by others who use the Word of God wrongly. We're all too aware of Christian liberals and Christian legalists. Legalists damn everybody. Have you ever come across a Christian legalist? Isn't it horrible? Liars go to hell. What? They come out with these horrible statements which condemn people and say, talk about hell so flippantly. You should never talk about hell unless you're weeping. Jesus died to stop this world going to hell. We can't just flippantly say, you're going to go to hell. Jesus said, don't do that. What about the Health, wealth and prosperity gurus that you can get on God Channel on, well, go to India and you get loads of them, don't you? Been a, drives me mad to go to India on the television and there you have them. God doesn't want you to have difficulties. God doesn't want you to have material lack. If you've got a mini, you just speak to it in Jesus' name and say, be a Porsche. I hate that. I hate it. God wants to prosper people. Praise God. He wants to prosper and give millions of pounds to people. Praise God. What for? To advance the kingdom of God. To bless the church of God. Next, we bring a lot of baggage. This is every one of us, okay? We bring a lot of baggage to the text. See, we've grown up. Here, we, here young people, please hear this. We've grown up in a culture which says that everybody's opinion is as valid as everybody else. And so every talk show, everything, you turn on the television, you learn the radio, you always hear this. Well, you hear this expert, and then you hear Bumbleweed, Joe Bumbleweed, on the phone with his idea. You know what I think of Jesus? I think he was a spaceman. Well, thank you, Joe Bumbleweed. That was very interesting. I wonder what everybody else thinks. And the trouble is, although a 
Of course, it's important to listen to people and hear people. The trouble is we bring this to church. The trouble is we, we listen to people. We listen to a John Groves who, 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 who works hard with a text, or a Simon Walker works hard with a text. And, and rather than receive it, thinking this is the word of God, God, I need to change. We think, well, who's he to tell me? My, well, what I really think. What I think is the priority isn't what you think is the priority. And we weaken the word of God. We weaken it because of our own baggage we bring to the text. We don't like black and white. We like grey. There's so many Christians who love grey. Actually, can I say Christianity isn't black and white. Christianity is multicoloured. Legalism is black and white. Christianity is multicolored because we understand the word of God. We understand its beauty. And we show the world what the beauty of God. So when it says, wives, submit to husband, legalists say black and white. Women know your place. Slap down. Shut up. Don't be seen in church. We see women in the church as something that God has put half the church who've got a contribution. As Marion showed this morning, what a wonderful contribution this morning. We need women who are fully using the gifts of the Holy Spirit, fully doing everything in family life, in church life, to make it multicolored. We don't want to be black and white, but we don't want to be grey. I don't know what I think, really. don't know what I think about family. don't know what I think about the Word of God. don't know what I think about hell. You need to. You need to give yourself to the Word, to be a people of one book. And finally, God has asked us to do things, the reason... This is a stronghold. God has asked us to do things we don't actually want to do. We don't like being told, do we? We don't like it when someone says, get baptized in water. Young people, you believed in Jesus, now you get baptized in water. Immediately, go ahead, get baptized. Well, no, I'll do it when I'm ready. We don't like it when it says, expel the immoral brother. We like him. He's not so bad. Forgive as Christ forgave you. Well... It takes time to get this out of my system. You see, we have got used to treating the Bible, not just prophecies with contempt, we've got used to treating the Bible with contempt. God wants us as Christians, as church leaders, to come back to being people of one book. How do we engage in this battle? Let me be very practical here. In Romans chapter 12, let's just turn to that, please. Just don't want to quote it. I want you to read it for yourselves. It says in verse 12, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. God wants to do a transformation of our minds, to think as he thinks. How does he do that? He does that with us having a biblical mindset. There is a, uh, in Romans chapter 1, it says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And I was just looking up what this... um, word suppress means it means to hold the truth in unrighteousness if you like to hold the truth in a prison 
to put the truth, put the word of God in a prison so that we can carry on our life independently of God. Are you doing that? Is there things that God has spoken from his word? You know he's spoken about it. To break up with that person, don't be yoked with an unbeliever. To live, to give, to do things. And you've said, well, I'm going to hold it unrighteous. I'm going to put it here. It's going to be nicely contained in that prison so we no longer have to think about it. Joseph was put in a prison. Have you got the word of God in a prison? Because today is a day God wants to bring you out. Practically, what does this mean? It means this. First of all, get hold of a Bible. If you're a new Christian, buy one. Get hold of a Bible. Secondly, read it. Is this too hard to understand? Read the Bible from cover to cover. Your pastor will help you, give you the yearly discipline of how to, how to arm yourself with the Word of God. Thirdly, pray. Pray Psalm 119, verse 18, as John Piper does every time he comes to the Word of God. Open my eyes that I may see, I may see wonderful things in your law. That's how the psalmist prays. Open my eyes. Bruce Wilkinson said, Oh, that he reads every, every day, he reads the prayer of Jabez, 1 Chronicles 4 9. Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my borders. Next, read it with childlike humility. Don't read it as a drudge. Read it in childlike humility. Read, I was encouraging you to read Luke's Gospel. I was reading Luke's Gospel over my summer vacation. And I, I, I don't know if you ever get these, I just laughed at moments. I suddenly could see something of the humanity of Jesus in, the, in the, what was going on here. So, you know, when you give, when you're giving, and they give tomorrow, have a gift day, he says, don't announce it with a brass band. Don't have ba 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 as you're walking in. Hey, folks, this great brass band going, here comes the gift. Jesus, I think, had a wonderful way, a wonderful sense of humor just to underlie and to show people the true nature of the human heart. Read the Bible with faith. Faith believes and obeys the Word of God. It might not look possible, it might look impossible, but with God all things are possible. He speaks, we trust, and we obey. We ask questions every time we read and listen. What part of my life am I called to lose in order to gain Christ? The Word of God is to wash us. We're on, on camp. How many of you need? How many people think the, people, the person next to them needs a good wash? I mean, everyone starts to smell a bit iffy, do not it? Get to tomorrow evening, it's like, let's not get too excited and lift our hands in worship. Let's just do a little bit more subdued. The, war, the Word of God washes. It washes us. We need to come daily to the Word of God and allow that Word to wash us. What part of my life, Jesus, am I supposed to lose in order to gain Christ? And then give, finally, give our lives, give our churches in obedience to the Word of God and to the prophetic. Jude says, contending for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Contend is a strong word. It's a soldier's word. It means fight for the truth. We need a fight for the truth. Amen? We need a fight for the Bible. And we need to win that battle first and foremost in our own homes, in our own lives. 
We need to go back and say, this is the word of God. I'm not going to give myself to reading hundreds of Christian books or whatever else. I'm going to give myself to reading the Bible. It transforms us. We need to have it supreme in the church and supreme in our life. Second stronghold. I believe there's a stronghold out there, a stronghold in here that we need to challenge, and that's the battle for the family. Back in Genesis, as, you, as we read together, Joseph's brothers were not that impressed with the dream. If you actually read the patriarchs and read the book of Genesis, I'm amazed how well turned out some of them turned out, aren't you? I mean, again, we, we read it sort of quite superficially sometimes. Isaac... His dad's putting him on the altar, bound him up, sharpening the knife. And Isaac, young lad, uh, where, where, hey, dad, dad, where, where's the, where's the, where's the, look, looking, not looking good here. Where's the ram? God will provide, wait, God will provide, he's not doing a very good job at the moment. By the look, of the look in your eye and the sharpness of that knife, I'm panicking here. I mean, I'm amazed Isaac turned out as well as he did. Laughter, I bet it was hysterical laughter on that altar. <laughs> God can raise the dead son. <laughs> How about Jacob? You know, boss-eyed Leah. He obviously drunk too much on his, on his wedding day. He wakes up and went, whoa, wrong one. And then he, then, then he gets the right one, but then he gets the concubines, get married to them, and they start bartering vegetables so he's going to go to bed with him. I mean, it's like, what on earth? Fancy that as your dad. And then you've got all this breakdown with Joseph. Joseph's brothers hated him. His dad sport him rotten. Envy, division, brokenness. Jacob's hug farewell to Joseph in, in this chapter is going to be the last time he sees his son for 20 years. I want to say, God may need to minister to you that you've never seen your dad for 20 years. You've never seen your dad at all. You've grown up without a father. We're living in a nation with so many broken families. Many of us carry the burden. Many of us almost have strongholds in our lives that no one can speak or get near to because we've been abused. We've been hurt. We've been rejected at the very youngest of age. Our brother, our sister, they said this, they did that. It's amazing. I meet so many people who are in their 50s and 60s still carrying words back down when they were teenagers of family members of what happened. Never free. God's purposes in the world are amazingly and importantly worked out through the family unit. It's important to God we build families well and the church family well. And both these communities are under attack. And we need to start to stand up and say, no, this is the way. This is the right way to build community. We build it starting with family. In the 1960s, 5% of singles live with the man before they, women, single women live with the man before they got married. It is now 70%. We believed a lie again of Satan saying that cohabitation is just the same as marriage. Let me read a non-Christian article on this. On average, cohabitation lasts two years before breaking up. 
less than 4% last more than 10 years. When children are involved, the statistic gets worse, not better. You think, ah, oh, they've got kids, that'll make them more stable, and it gets worse. Pressure. Cohabitation, it says, is far more likely, cohabitants are far more likely to suffer from depression than marrieds. Far more likely to have abuse in the family than marrieds. In other words, cohabitation is a lie. And as a society, we've bought into that lie and thinking, yeah, it's fine. Let's not be judgmental. Let's not just... Marriage is what God intended from the beginning. There may be couples in this room sleeping together. There may be things that you're just starting to imbibe of the world. And God will want to say, no, I want to draw you back to my plan. It's produced a society where we've got divorce, almost half of all marriage. 40,000 teenage pregnancies every year. Only a third of those have any man involved. The challenge for us as a church is that our statistics don't fare that much better. You see, we have confused God's order. And we have imbibed selfishness and sin as part of our lifestyle that has resulted in divorce. One of the greatest compliments one of my elders has given me since I've been in Bournemouth is he said, you set the benchmark for marriage high. It's an important thing. We understand God's plan for marriage. God's plan for family. And I hope I'm not teaching grandmother to suck eggs here, but it's, let me just read some scripture. It's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord, Colossians 3.18. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, Ephesians 5.25. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. The foundational unit for our society is the family. When this is destroyed, all hell breaks loose, as it is at the moment. And so the church... The church of Jesus Christ has got to find a voice and lead a way and show the way that actually things should be different and can be different. We need to understand very clearly what God intends for men. Dads, you are more than sperm banks. You are more, you are more than absentee landlords. Men and women, we need to understand we were created differently. Men and women are different. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to say that, does it? But we are. I mean, they, praise God they are. I think. Drives me mad. Just women, can I just give you a bit of advice? One of the things, just, just whilst I'm thinking about it. Never ask your man, what are you thinking? Okay, it just drives men mad. It puts men in a panic. As soon as you ask him, there's a hundred voices going on in his head. What am, I th- what am I thinking? Come on, think of something. Th- think of something. Think of something clever. Just anything. Anything you can possibly think of, just say it. Ladies, never underestimate a man's ability to be vacant. We aren't thinking anything. We need to find out how to be a man. We need to find out how to love our wives. 
Wives need to find out. Women need to find out how to be Proverbs 31. Women. Wives. Children. Need to find that submission, as wives do, as we all do, submission is the most beautiful word, in the, one of the most beautiful words I believe in the Bible. It's not less than. Jesus fully submitted to the Father. Why? That we might become children of God. It's a fantastic word. A few years ago, well, actually in the 1980s and 90s, Camel Cigarettes ran an ad campaign showing a man on a, well, one of them on a stallion, another one on an aeroplane, right out in the wilderness with the slogan, Where a Man Belongs. And John Piper says this, I pray that the church will be filled with men who, when they see that sign, say to hell with such lies. Men who know that where a man belongs is on his knees beside his wife leading in prayer. Where a man belongs is at the bedside of his children leading in devotion and prayer. Where a man belongs is in the driving seat leading his family to the house of God. Where a man belongs is up early and seeking God's vision and direction for his family. Men, I challenge you in the name of Jesus Christ our King, be where you belong. Can I just say this as I just finish on this one? As Christian parents, we need to become clear what our role is. We're not called to be our children's best friends. Sometimes we imbibe this worldly view. You've just got to be friendly with them. Just give them everything they want. Want an Xbox? Fine. Want to go to the... Yeah, that's fine. We're ruining our children. A child who grows up and never heard the word no has no understanding of what really the word yes is all about. The privileges that they're enjoying, they need to understand the responsibility they have to society. And if we're always just giving in to them, they'll never grow up responsible. We need to teach them the Word of God. We need to show them how to live. And the most important thing you can ever give a child, dads, is to love the wife. To love your wife. And to show your children there is one authority in this house that mum and dad are desperately keen to do. And that is to follow the will of God and the Bible for this family. Let's not have Christian goals for children that are just like the world. I want my kid to be a spaceman or a footballer with brains. You know, anything like that. Let's have a goal for our children that they be the very best they can be for God. Be that sweeping a street or being that a nurse or a doctor. Jesus says in the Luke chapter 8, My mother and brothers are those who hear the word of God and put it into practice. Do you need grace? Is there a stronghold in this whole area of the family? You've had a broken family. You're reproducing things that you had. Or you think, I can never be a parent because of what's happened in my past. God wants to break in today and set people free. And the final stronghold, if you turn to Genesis 39, we won't be have a chance time to read all this, but this is a big one. Now, to help you get into the picture, just think of me. Now, Joseph was well built and handsome. Verse 6. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. Now Joseph was in a foreign land. He just learned a new language. No one could know. No one could see. You would expect the next verse to be, woohoo! 
But verse 8, he refused. With me in charge, he told, my master does not concern himself with anything. In verse 11, one day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the servants was inside and she caught him by the cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house and she saw that he'd left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house. She called to her household servants, look, she said, this Hebrew who's brought to us has made sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. And when he heard me scream for help, he took, left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. I bet the servants were, yeah, right. And she kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. And then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you bought has come to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. And when his master heard the story his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. And Joseph's master took him and put him in prison. The place where the king's prisoners were confined. Can I just say, sex as God intended can lead us to prison. Sex as God did not intend can also lead us into prison. Joseph, obviously a handsome young guy, attracts Potiphar's wife, a man-eater, no doubt. Starts flirting, innuendo, a little splash of flesh, a lingering look. Finally, she tries to almost date-rape him, and Joseph runs off, ends up in prison. You know, we've surveyed two battlegrounds, two bloody battlegrounds this morning. The Word of God, we've lost ground, lost loads of ground in this nation. The family, we've lost ground. But when it comes to sex, these other things are small fry. If these other grounds have got casualties in their hundreds, this one has slain tens of thousands Christian leaders, Christian men, women, destroyed over this one area of sexual immorality. It's at pandemic levels, it's at swine flu levels in our nation, wherever you go. We we live in a sex-saturated society, don't we? You can't go anywhere. You can't watch a billboard or switch on the television or read a magazine or go into a newsagent without understanding. We live in a saturated society. The Indians, when they first come here, one of the first things they notice is getting off the aeroplane. Wow, your adverts are so provocative, so raunchy. Now let me just say this, this is where the battle lines lie. This could end up with leaders ending up in prison for saying this stuff. I'm nervous saying it actually from this platform. Political correctness in the UK has now produced a code of practice that it's ramping up with increasing militancy. And we will need clarity, we will need courage to stand against the tide. Let me just do three. The world's political correct statement, sex is fun. Nothing is off limits. No one is off limits. Not any person, not any animal. It's all about you, your enjoyment, your pleasure. Wrong. The Bible says sex is a gift of God. Sex is great fun. But only within marriage. Within the safety of marriage. To quote my wife, I really love sex. Just thought I might put that in. No, 
married 28 years. She's not going to speak to me. I'm going to, anybody who offer me lunch today would be helpful. <laughs> and within marriage, there is great variety, great enjoyment to be given. But the enjoyment is for the person to give the other person. It's not there to take, it's there to give. Secondly, homosexuality, same-sex, lesbianism, that's normal. That's what the world says. It's no different from anything else, no different from animals. It's all genetic. It's legitimate. Wrong. The Bible says homosexuality is not natural. Why is it on the rise then? Because of the destruction of the family. Because no one's actually giving a lead of what it looks like to be a biblical man and a biblical woman. Is that natural? It's non-biological. It's a sin. It's a deviation from God's design and purpose and beauty of sex. And it's destructive. There's something about sexual sin, as we'll just see in a few minutes, that destroys and perverts the very nature of a person. Third lie, pornography is healthy. It provides an escape value for sexual frustration. It catalogues sexual options and enables viewers to work out their own choices. Jesus said, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. Jesus says, lust is a fire. And pornography is like pouring petrol on that fire. It burns and consumes lives. And if there is any ostrich out there, let me tell you that lust affects most people in society. 372 million porn web pages on the internet. 35% of all internet downloads are pornography. 70% of, 72% of the users are men. The most searched for word on the internet is sex. And it is predicted that over half of the Church of Jesus Christ is in its captive claws. Paul says, flee sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Paul counters Gnostic thinking there in Corinth that could see the body as somehow unimportant to God. What the body does, God isn't that interested in. He's just interested in our spirits, what we do on Sundays, what we do when we worship. Paul counters that. He goes back into the Old Testament. He talks about how God is angry. Why was God so angry? He says when actually in the, in the pagan fertility gods as the children of Israel came in and gave themselves to that, they weren't just giving themselves to a, a, an act. They're actually giving their whole body and soul and person to idolatry. You know, I went to India, and uh, in India we were shown some caves of some ancient uh, religions. And in the caves there was uh, all these different statues and sort of semi-naked statues and all the rest of it. But in the center of all the caves, there was sort of like hills with a great big mountain in the middle of it. And I stupidly said to the Indian pastor with me, I said, uh, just everywhere we go, he seemed to see what this, what is this? And he said, somewhat embarrassingly, that is the penis entering the vagina. I mean, it killed the conversation dead. But people would come to these caves and they'd bow down and they'd worship. Just as they did in the Old Testament, they'd come down and sex was engaged 
in the act of worship. Sex was engaged because the people gave themselves over in sacrificial worship, saying that God, if you, the gods of fertility, the gods of prosperity, in this act we give ourselves to you that you would bless us. And God is sad, breaks God's heart, God is angry. It robs God of what belongs to Him and to Him alone. That is, all of us. We can't separate our sex lives out from the whole rest of our lives. Please, that is a stronghold in our, in our, in our culture, our church culture. It's Gnosticism. And God is so saddened and sickened by sexual sin that 23,000 people died in the Old Testament. Such was God's anger towards them. How do we break with sexual sin? How do we break with its power? It begins by not trying to manage it. It begins by refusing to lie about it. Men, hear this. I'm a man. I know this. Stop fooling yourself. Stop thinking I can manage this. Stop thinking I can stay up late. Oh, I think I might just casually flick through the TV channels. Oh, look at that. I'm going to go into the news agents. I'm only going to buy a fishing magazine. I wonder if they're on the top shelf. Wow, no, they're not. Men are so naive. In Proverbs, it talks about the young man wandering nearer and nearer to the prostitute's house and all of a sudden she comes out and he's enslaved. Men, stop lingering. Stop hanging around her house because it will enslave you, it will ensnare you, it will keep you unproductive in the whole of your Christian life. It will keep you condemned in your Christian life. You'll be kept in a prison when everybody else is charging for you. You'll be in the prison thinking, oh, if only, oh, I feel so guilty, I feel so dirty. God is in this place. There is grace in this place. If you would confess your sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive you your sin. We need to come into the light and allow God to change us. Please, 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 I'm almost begging you this morning, take this Seriously. The odds I know are against us. We're a few hundred against thousands. And the demons are claiming victory even over the church. A.W. Tozer says, God cannot fully bless a man until he has first conquered him. I'm calling men particularly, but men and women this morning to answer the call. I'm giving a bugle sound and saying this is a day for us to take these strongholds seriously in our life. Because we're going to go out, this world, out of this tent into this world and transform this world in these areas. But first and foremost, we need to have it conquered by Jesus in ourselves. We need to clear ourselves. We need to be men and women under the word of God. Giving ourselves back where we haven't read the word of God for weeks, months, years giving ourselves back to the Word of God, where our families are broken, where we've believed the world's values and views. Today, God's coming in saying, actually, no, I want this family for Jesus Christ. I want this to be a Christian family where the dad leads. The dad is the spiritual thermometer, the barometer of the whole day, and he sets the tone. Dads, it's a time to take responsibility for your family. Men, it's a time where we say to hell with a lie of pornography and sex and lust, that we can live as the world lives. No, we're going to live differently. We're going to live pure, holy lives before God. This is a day to nail these things. This is a day when God calls us to his heavenly purpose. Will you respond?